So today we're going to finish off the first half of the book of Revelation. Book of, th- this book is very carefully divided between chapters 1 through 11 and then 12 and on to the end. So we're going to take a break next Sunday through the season of Lent. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke through the season of Lent. We'll have slightly smaller passages during the season of Lent. And we'll pick back up on the second half of Revelation during the season of Easter. To start, I want to remind us of the blessing attached to the beginning of the book. This is chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, as much as we want to understand everything that's written in the book of Revelation, and yes, we should certainly make that our goal, understanding, the blessing is not attached strictly to understanding. And I don't think this is a cop-out so that I don't have to help you understand everything this morning because uh, I think it's actually very important to our attitude as we come before the book. The blessing is attached to listening and to obeying. To listening and to obeying. Uh, Revelation is not one of those books that becomes absolutely clear on the first reading, in case you haven't noticed, or the second reading. It becomes clearer and clearer after the 20th, 30th, and 40th reading. It is a book that we're meant to live with, to allow it to unfold before us little by little. As we live with it, as we surrender to it and are willing to obey the things that we do understand in it, it'll become clearer and clearer along the way. So what we're doing together right now for a lot of us is only the beginning of learning to live with this book and learning to experience the blessings of it, despite how intimidating and mysterious it can be. So with that in mind, we're going to dive into these really fun chapters. The entire book of Revelation weaves together more of the rest of the Bible than any other book of Scripture. We need to know this. It weaves together more of the rest of the Bible than any other book in Scripture. The way that Revelation creates meaning is through symbols that allude to other places in Scripture. So truly, the two greatest skills you need to read Revelation well is a thorough knowledge of Scripture, one, and a vivid imagination. This is especially true for this section. So to start, in Israel, trumpets were used to call the people to worship and to war. Dual purpose, to worship and to war. On at least one occasion, these two purposes were combined. Israel marched around the city of Jericho, blowing their liturgical instruments. This climaxed in the falling down of the walls of Jericho and Israel's conquering of the land. Trumpets were also used to announce the beginning of the year of Jubilee. This was the year in which all the debts were forgiven and land was returned to its original owners. So these are clues to what's happening in Revelation chapters 8 through 11. 
remember where we are in the storyline first. So in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus ascended as king. John saw this from a heavenly perspective. The lamb that was slain ascended to heaven and took his throne. In chapter 6, the lamb sent his spirit, his fire to his people. And they have ridden out into the world in the power of the spirit with the news of the gospel. God's call on humanity to repent. To repent of false worship, of false alliances, and to turn to him. But this has created division. Here's something we have to embrace if we're to be Christians. When God begins to make the world new, anyone with investments in the old world fights to keep it intact. Look, very few of us like change, right? Even the small stuff like rearranging furniture can take time to get used to. But what we're talking about here is massive change, the remaking of the world. There are people who do not want the old version of the world to pass away. It's going to mean a loss of power, a loss of control over one's own life. The trumpets illustrate a war of worship. A war of worship between God, His people, and the world. But just like in Jericho and in the year of Jubilee, Jesus is taking possession of the land and He is distributing it to His saints, the meek of the earth. I want us to look at the trumpets through two main points this morning. First, the trumpets uncover the old world. This is what we're going to look at first. Second, the trumpets unveil a new world. So first... The trumpets uncover the old world. The first six trumpets record this uncovering in graphic and nightmarish detail. Just like the four horsemen last week, the first four trumpets come rapid fire. So these are supposed to correspond to each other. The first four trumpets this week to the first four horsemen uh, from last week. The first four trumpets, well, all of them for that matter, they all convey some form of judgment on the earth. So the first trumpet is followed by hail and fire mixed with blood. A third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees and all green grass. With the second trumpet, a great mountain is thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea becomes blood. What's what's going on here? The judgments have obvious allusions to the plagues in Egypt. Remember, the best way to interpret Revelation is through its echoes to the rest of Scripture and to its echoes within itself. So God demanded in the book of Exodus, He demanded that Pharaoh release his people from slavery. Pharaoh repeatedly refused. God sent plagues, first blood in the Nile, later thunder, hailstorms that destroyed Egyptian crops, and then locusts followed after. What was the goal of all of this? What is God doing? The plagues were aimed directly at Pharaoh. They were deprivations intended to change his heart. Won't you let my people go? That has to be the goal in the seven trumpets as well. God's judgment is never arbitrary. It's never a wanton rage that needs an outlet. And you just happen to be in the wrong place. 
but who are these plagues directed at? Is it all humanity? And this brings up the other question. Is it really a third of the earth, a third of the trees, a third of the ships of the rivers and so on? And if so, what third is it? Over and over when we're reading the book of Revelation, we have to remind ourselves to read this symbolically and to read it with the rest of Scripture in view. So when you count them up in Greek, one-third is used 12 times in the first four trumpets. A lot of our English Bibles add one in for clarity, and if you double-check me on this and you count 13, make sure you're not counting the third angel. I assure you it's 12. I've counted over and over. And 12 is intentional. It's nearly as important as the number 7. It stands for the 12 tribes of Israel. We already heard in chapter 6 that Israel was beginning to experience a shortage of God. Because they've rejected their Messiah, Jesus, who would have been their rescuer, they're being diminished. They are losing their own vitality, their sense of life and fruitfulness. God called Israel to be the light of the world, but they've refused to be that light. Their light is being extinguished. Why? There's a larger point to be made here. Worship and religion are not simply about what you believe. They are about what you believe, but they're not simply about what you believe. Worship and religion determine the kind of person you become. True worship puts you on a trajectory to become a true person. False worship does the opposite. It distorts you. You become a crooked person. Israel has rejected Jesus and it's destroying them from the inside out. The trumpets, in a symbolic way, are conveying the period in the book of Acts when Israel has launched an assault against Christians. They've begun to murder them and others they turn into the authorities. So when we hear that the first trumpet is followed by fire and blood being thrown on the earth, what we're hearing about is the blood of the martyrs. Fire is mixed with blood and a sacrifice. This is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So the martyrs' deaths are a sacrifice to God. God's going to honor their sacrifice. But, and here's the catch, martyr blood is like gasoline. It's combustible and it causes the land of Israel to begin to burn. Now there's at least one more piece to this puzzle before things start to fit together. We, in our own time, live in a culture where tolerance is the highest virtue that one can have. What this means is we're not supposed to judge others' actions. This is the worst thing that you can be as a person is to be judgmental. People's moral choices are their business. This has made a lot of us very uncomfortable with the idea of God's judgment because God's judgment is the opposite of tolerance. Everyone's business becomes God's business too. So we might wish to believe that the Old Testament God has given way to an updated and gentler personality in the New Testament, but Revelation breaks the back of any kind of dichotomy like this. 
The God revealed in Jesus is a God of mercy and judgment. And his judgment is as much an uncovering as it is a punishment. So Jesus, remember, he is the light that exposes things hidden in darkness. And this is what God's justice does. Here's what I mean. The first plague in Egypt was God turned the Nile River to blood. Do you remember this? This is the first plague. But this was only an uncovering of what what Egypt was already doing. Pharaoh had ordered the killing of male Hebrew babies. The river was already a river of blood. God just showed it to be true. He showed it to be the case that Egypt had blood on its hands. It was full of blood. So it's the same way with the plagues here. These plagues are an uncovering of the spiritual barrenness of darkness and darkness of Israel after they have rejected God. So the first plague, there is a blight on the trees and the green grass. Everything is burned up. This is an uncovering of the barrenness of Israel because they have rejected God. Now this is the way that we should read each of the first six trumpets as a punishment on Israel because of their rejection of God. So how does this make sense of the second trumpet? The second trumpet is followed by a great mountain being thrown into the sea. Well, where else in Scripture do we hear about a great mountain being uprooted and thrown into the sea? We should recall what Jesus said to his disciples. That if they prayed in faith that a mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, it would be so. Now when Jesus says this, he is near the city of Jerusalem. And the greatest mountain in the city of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount, where the temple is located. Israel believed the temple to be the very center of the world, from which rivers of life flowed out. Look, the key to the meaning of the second trumpet and the third trumpet are right here. Israel has rejected God, and because of this, their temple has begun to to die at the roots. It's going to be uprooted, and it's going to be thrown into the sea of the Gentiles. And also because of their rejection of God, there are poisoned waters that are flowing from it to the rest of the world. They're supposed to be giving life to the world through their true worship of the true God, but instead they are sending out false worship. It's become a commercial product that they send out to the world. So each of the first six trumpets is an uncovering of the old world, of the false worship that unfailingly brings a self-inflicted judgment. But how does this work with the horrifying creatures in the fifth and sixth trumpets? Do you know that the wings on the locust horse scorpions, uh, there's one writer I'm reading who calls these locorpions. They've been interpreted as modern helicopters for war. And then the lion horse serpents, which this same writer calls, um, oh goodness, I can't remember. I'm sorry, it's a very creative name. Um, uh, the lion horse serpents they, they're with shields are interpreted as uh, modern tanks for warfare. This is one interpretation that's been offered. The, these first creatures are released from a pit by a fallen star. Now, 
Remember that Satan was said to have fallen from heaven like lightning? Stars are rulers in the ancient world. Jesus, remember the, the wise men were led to Jesus by a star. But this ruler is falling from heaven. This is Satan. And his, his name means destruction. Now, as frightening as these creatures are, what you can call them are composite creatures. Look, they're composed of all these other creatures, right? And we've seen creatures like this before. Think about it. The cherubim around God's throne, they have the faces of an ox, a lion, an eagle, and a man, and each one has wings. What we're encountering here are the devil's versions. The devil, as it's been said, does nothing original. He only distorts and makes hideous what God has done. These creatures are a perversion of God's beauty and love. They torture instead of bringing life. So the bigger question here is, how do they carry out their torture? How do they do this? These plagues come on people because of false worship. We're told that these creatures only torture those who are not sealed by God. So there are those who are protected by God because of their faithfulness to Christ. The way these creatures torture is by perpetuating false worship. So false worship causes us to try to live lives against the grain of ourselves and against the grain of the world. It destroys us from the inside in the way that it was destroying Israel. Have you ever seen someone who is running from God? Have you ever known someone running from God? Haven't you known someone whose life is only tolerable when they're drunk or they're using some other crutch to escape themselves, whether it's sex and pornography, work or money, whatever, power, whatever it is? Haven't you known people like this? Life becomes a living hell, and they'd rather die than face God and their own self. These that in Revelation are images of the demonic forces that are behind such delusions. It, they torture people in their false worship. But these creatures perpetuate it and refuse to let them get out of it. These first six trumpets, in various ways, are uncovering the realities in this old world. They uncover its darkness and the self-inflicted destruction that goes with it. Now, thankfully, this is not all the trumpets do. They do uncover the old world, but they're also going to unveil a new one. So following the sixth trumpet, but before the seventh, an angel comes down from heaven. Its description is stunning. This is in chapter 10, verse 1. He's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face is like the sun. His legs are like pillars of fire. You need an imagination for this. He carries a scroll. It must be the scroll that was opened by the Lamb in chapter 5. His right foot is on the sea, and his left foot is on the land. Do you know that for a king to put his foot on a piece of property is to claim it as his own? His voice is like a lion roaring. This is not an ordinary angel. 
He looks just like the descriptions of Jesus earlier in Revelation. Also, it's Yahweh who appears in a cloud in the Old Testament, who guides Israel in the wilderness. And who is it that stands on the waves of the sea? We hear in the Old Testament that Yahweh rides the waves of the sea, and then Jesus walks on the waves. This angel is none other than the Spirit, the embodiment of Jesus and the Father. Now John is told to take the scroll from the angel spirit and to eat it. In eating it, John is going to become a prophet. This is how the new world becomes unveiled. Through the vocation of prophecy, which is the preaching of God's word. Throughout the scriptures, prophecy and preaching nearly always overlap. A prophet takes on the words of God to give them to God's people. He consumes them, or better yet, they consume him, and he delivers them. So Jeremiah, in uh, the, the book of Jeremiah, it said that the words of God become like a fire in his belly. He cannot help but speak them. A new reality is brought into being when God's heavenly words work their way on earth through preaching, through the proclamation of the word. Now this vocation has its blessing, so the prophet gets to consume the words of God, which are sweet to the taste, but this vocation also has burdens. God's words are hard on the stomach. There's a bitter aftertaste. You know, this is a good description of the vocation of a pastor and a preacher. Their job during the week is to eat and consume the words of God. And there are incredible blessings in this. God's word is rich and it's sweet. And yet, at the same time, there is a bitterness in it. And the job of the preacher is to come and proclaim those words in all their sweetness and in all their bitterness every Sunday. The work of proclaiming God's new world will not be easy on John. This is what the rest of the book of Revelation will be, is this book that he is eating. Now, John is then told to take a measuring rod and measure the temple of God. Again, we're in a world of symbols. This is not a literal temple that John is seeing. What is the temple in the New Testament? It's the church. God's people, where God dwells among us. John's prophecy and his preaching is a form of drawing straight lines, of establishing boundaries in the world between what is good and what is evil, what is holy and what's crooked. Lines establish the boundary between what's holy and what's profane. And John will preach in a way that establishes boundaries. But the lines are meant to lead the church, God's people, into repentance, to abide by His straight lines. So if there are not clear lines in the world, it's because the Word is not being faithfully preached or prophesied. When God's preachers and teachers don't speak with moral clarity, with sharpness and straightness, morality gets murky, Our lines become relaxed and our lives grow crooked rather than straight. When preachers lose track of their vocation, 
the church loses track of the new world that God is making. Now, here, this much is clear. The scroll John consumes is going to unveil the, mystery, unveil the mystery of God in the rest of the book of Revelation. But before we close, we have to ask, who are these two witnesses? Who are the two witnesses that will testify to God, but then be slayed and then be raised up? Again, we're not left without clues. We're told about all these time periods that in which the two witnesses will exercise their ministry, in which they will die, and then in which they will rise. And each time period in this portion of Revelation is modeled on Jesus' ministry. This is amazing. Jesus, Jesus ministered triumphantly for about three and a half years, but then He was crucified. After three days, He was raised, vindicated, and exalted. Now, these two witnesses go through the same sequence as Jesus. They prophesy for 1260 days, which is three and a half years. The same period as Jesus' ministry. Then, after three and a half years, they are killed and their bodies remain in the street for three and a half days until they are raised up by God's Spirit. Do you see what's happened? These two ministers of God... Their ministry is modeled after Jesus' ministry. But there's one more clue here. The two witnesses are called Jesus' two lampstands. And lampstands in the book of Revelation are churches. They shine the light of Jesus into Jesus' world. These two witnesses represent the church. This is why they aren't named. We're not meant to try to find out who exactly they are. They are symbolic witnesses. They aren't merely two people. They are the complete church. The new humanity that was formerly divided is now united in a common testimony to Jesus. The two witnesses, their faithfulness to Christ, even to death, opens the way for the seventh trumpet. Now, we're close to the end. Do you remember that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two? And it gave access to the holy place. The church models the life of Jesus in our witness, in our self-sacrifice. This is what these two witnesses symbolize. We die to ourselves and offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God, sometimes to death. But when the church dies for the world like Jesus did, another veil is torn open and another sanctuary is opened. So with the seventh trumpet, the veil between heaven and earth is torn away. The lightning and the earthquake, the thunder, the hail that come, all this is but evidence that the heavenly veil is being shattered as the throne of God descends to earth. What we're seeing here is that Jesus paved the way for us to access God. But the church in dying with Jesus, in faithfulness to Him, paves the way for the kingdom of God to come from heaven to earth. I want to close by sharing a story with you. This past week, Kelly had the chance to attend this conference that's put on by the Anglican Church of North America. And she was able to hear from a lady named Christine Warner. Christine is a, the wife of a pastor. Uh, it's Christ Church Anglican in Austin, Texas. 
And about 10 months ago, she was pulled over on the side of the road. Her children had run out of gas, and so they called her, asking if she could bring them gas. So she did. They're pulled over on the side of the road. She's putting gas into their car, and a distracted driver driving a truck hits her while she's standing on the side of the road. Um, they, they thought she was dead. For a while, she had no pulse. And any one of her injuries, they say, could have killed her. Her carotid artery was severed, as was her liver. She was intubated for 10 days. She says that there's this semi-accurate record of how many times she almost died. But she says in the midst of all this that she felt as if the prayers of God's people grabbed her and yanked her to life. Now, I was able to listen to her testimony at Christ Church in Austin and hear a lot of this. She, she says she keenly felt the presence of death and life throughout this time. Each time she was near death, she describes experiencing a sense of darkness that was on her right side. It said, you were tired, and I win anyway. Give up. It urged her to give up and choose darkness and death. But on her right, she saw something like light and life. And she describes these as very real things that she was seeing and experiencing. There was clearly something that was in front of life, and then there was also something that was behind life. She says that she knew that in front of life was pain. And then she goes on to say that she was also aware she had to choose to engage pain in order to re-enter life. But then behind life she saw, and pain, she saw the presence of Jesus. She said, I knew I didn't want pain. I wasn't even sure I wanted to live, but I did know that I wanted Jesus. And every time she faced a choice between the darkness on her right and the light on her left, she directed these words toward Jesus. Yes, I choose you. There was still going to be difficulty. The breathing tube she received, they say, is compared to waterboarding. And because she kept trying to remove it herself, they had to tie down her arms. She describes her arms as being tied in a cruciform shape. She felt like she was experiencing the vulnerability of Jesus as he was nailed to the cross. She couldn't help but think about her own sufferings in light of Jesus' sufferings. Her face was also crushed. It was marred. It required complete reconstruction. Now, it's ten months after this event, and she was sharing this testimony in Washington, D.C., Remarkably, she's still recovering, and Christine says that through this suffering, she's experienced the close presence of angelic beings. Somewhat on the other side of the worst of the pain, she says that everything around her seems covered in gold. This is what was so significant to me. It sounds so much like Revelation. Everything, she says, seems covered in gold, sprinkled with gold, a vibrating, humming beauty. I share this story because Revelation is a story of the church discovering the life of heaven as we embrace Jesus and his cruciform life into our lives. We take his life onto our lives. 
And contrary to the way we tend to think about it, this is not a life of becoming a doormat. It's a life of embracing God, His righteousness and justice as the coming new world. So many of us, we might not be dying for the faith, but in our work, in our families, with our friendships, in all kinds of ways to really follow God, our arms have to be spread out. And we have to experience the vulnerability of Jesus and His crucifixion. But we have to trust that embracing this, embracing God and His promised justice, He will vindicate us. And His new world is coming. So the trumpets... They uncover the old world and all its deceits, but they also unveil a new one that is covered in gold, that is sprinkled with gold, that has a vibrating and humming beauty. So let's stand to pray. And as we do, let's pray that this new world would continue its way to earth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.